Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Andrew Porwancher, author of The Devil Himself. Andrew Porwancher, author of The Devil Himself, A Tale of Honor, Insanity, and the Birth of Modern America. Where'd you find out about this story? Uh, well, first, let me just say, Brian, thank you for having me. It's, sure. it's always great to be back in Harrisburg. Um, this story I initially found out about because the two trials that I write about in this book uh, were generated so much popular interest at the time that the trial transcripts were actually bound and sold, and people would hawk them on the street uh, in, in the 1880s when the story takes place. For You could buy a copy for 25 or 50 cents. And I found um, a... I found the title of uh, copies of, the, of these pamphlets um, in the catalog of a law library. And I got my hands on, on some copies and I started reading through the trial testimony. And it was this extraordinary story of outraged honor, of love forsaken, of revenge, of insanity, of political intrigue. And uh, I thought, you know, this is, this is an extraordinarily um, rich tale uh, it's, it's gripping in its details. It's deeply revealing of its historical moment. Surely someone has done a book-length historical treatment on this. And I got in touch with the local historical society. And despite this story's contemporary notoriety, uh, it had slipped into obscurity. And it, it survived as local folklore in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, where it began. Uh, but no one had actually done a proper book-length uh, historical uh, monograph on it. And so I got to you know, went out to Uniontown, dug into the archives, and started um, piecing together this story and, and was grateful for the opportunity to be the first one to be able to, hopefully with this book, bring the story back into uh, the public view in modern times. What was it about this story that, that caused it to be national news uh, as opposed to just being a, a shooting? Sure, sure. Um, well, I guess maybe it'd be helpful if I gave your viewers just a sort of a brief outline of the story itself. And I think um, the details of it are... are uh, sort of self-evident, I think, why, um, why this would be so interesting. I think, um, you know, this is a story that, that features two political figures from Uniontown, Pennsylvania, Captain Adam Nutt, who uh, is a, a Civil War hero, um, someone who's serving in a high position at the state treasury, and Nicholas Dukes, um, who's a rising politician who in 1882 gets elected to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. And in December of 1882, Dukes pens a scandalous letter to Captain Nutt um, in which he, he and Lizzie, he had been courting Lizzie um, and was engaged to her. And he says in this letter to Captain Nutt that he uh, can't marry her because she has had premarital relations with other men. And he, it's this graphic letter in which he details um, all, of, all of these other sorts of affairs that she's been having. And this is uh, in, in, at the height of Victorian propriety, 
Um, these allegations are, are, are astounding by the standards of the time. He, he suggests that Lizzie is actually pregnant by one of her other suitors and says that Captain Nutt should arrange, he implies that he should arrange for her to see an abortionist, which was something that had been uh, outlawed at the time and relegated to a black market of disreputable practitioners. Um, and Adam Nutt, upon receiving this letter, uh, is beyond outraged. He is someone who fought in the Civil War, who had risked his life to defend the honor of the Union, and his daughter's honor would now demand nothing less. And so Captain Nutt confronts Nicholas Dukes, um, and the two of them end up engaged in a lethal affray uh, that leaves Captain Nutt dead and Nicholas Dukes on trial for his life. And the details of these letters uh, gets leaked and it gets out into the press and, um, and people are uh, astounded by this because, um, the, because these allegations uh, cut so much against the grain of this Victorian notion of female propriety, of chastity outside of marriage. Um, and the letters are actually seen as a, as a more grave sin to have written letters of this character to Captain Nutt than actually killing him. Uh, and so public opinion galvanizes against Nutt, against rather Dukes in his trial when he's tried for murder, and yet Dukes is acquitted by a jury. And uh, the crowd inside the courthouse after Dukes' acquittal turns into a lynch mob and tries to kill Dukes, but Dukes ends up escaping on horseback under the cover of darkness. Um, and he ultimately returns to Uniontown but Captain Nutt's eldest son, James, who's uh, age 20, avenges his father's death and his sister's honor by slaying his father's killer uh, with the very gun that his father had clutched in his death throes. And in the very post office where, Nicol uh, where Nicholas Dukes had mailed this infamous letter to Captain Nutt, um, that's where Nicholas Dukes is killed. And so James Nutt goes on trial for murder now. Uh, but whereas Dukes had been villainized in his trial, James is heralded as this national hero for upholding this vaunted code of honor. And, um, and he is ultimately uh, uh, acquitted by a jury. Um, and his, uh, he's a very sympathetic defendant. And his legal team claims that he was temporarily insane. Um, which was just seen as sort of seen as a wink at the jury, uh, and this was uh, a claim that um, you know that that even James's supporters conceded in the wake of his acquittal was a farce designed to secure his freedom. Was it a, a, a defense that was used regularly at the time? Or it was, was it a new it, idea. Yeah, it was it, the insanity. first major publicly um, the first the first major national use of it happened in 1859. Um, it had been used before then, but not with as much notoriety. And then uh, in the 20 years leading up to James Nutt's case, uh, it becomes an increasingly popular uh, defense for people who commit honor killings. Um, honor killing is outside the letter of the law technically. It's sanctioned by the broader culture. And so claiming that someone was temporarily insane, that they had a monomaniacal fixation on avenging their honor is a way of adhering to the honor code while packaging it with the trappings of legality, offering some kind of pretense to legality that would give the jury some basis, however farcical it may actually be, for acquitting someone who's a sympathetic defendant. And that's what happens with James. Um, but what makes James's case so unique is that it turned out in the end he actually was insane, and he attempts an unprovoked killing spree after walking free. Um, and so this is a story um, with 
so many twists and turns. It's, uh, it's a story that uh, has all the drama that courtroom trials can provide. Um, and it's a story uh, that I think speaks to something deep in human nature because it's, it's ultimately a story uh, about sex and violence. And I think we often think of those subjects as appealing to our baser nature and that we're indulging in something when we read about those things. But I think that evolutionarily we're actually hardwired to be interested in those subjects because sex is what creates life and violence is something that threatens it. And so whoever has the most knowledge about both of those topics is at a competitive advantage to facilitate one and avoid the other. And so I think we're evolutionarily hardwired to be interested in those topics. And so to circle back to your original question, why did this story uh, achieve so much interest at the time? I think it's because it speaks to these issues and of life and death that we as a species um, are programmed by our very nature to have a keen interest in. What was it like reading the newspaper reports? Yeah, so the, the, you know, this, the newspaper reports were extraordinarily rich in their detail. Um, and it, it was a historian's dream, really, to be able to work with primary sources like this. Um, and many of the papers that I used are actually um, still in circulation today, the Harrisburg Patriots, uh, the Uniontown Standard, the, uh, the major Pittsburgh papers like the Pittsburgh Post. And so uh, what I loved about using these sources was the very fine-grained details they would provide in describing the trials. And just to give you one example, Brian, uh, there's a point where Captain Nutt's widow um, and Lizzie are sitting in court, and they're wearing mourning veils over their faces, um, which was standard at the time when you were in mourning um, for a year or two after mourning to always wear black in public and to wear these thick veils. And so you couldn't see their faces, but you knew that they were crying because when the sun poured in through the window of the courtroom, the reporter could see the reflection of the sun off of their cheeks, which meant that the cheeks were tear-soaked. Uh, and so as an author, to be able to include those kinds of sensory details for the reader um, was really, uh, is really extraordinary. Um, and so uh, you know, people would often ask me about this book when I give a talk on it, well, how much of this is true and how much of this did you embellish? And you know, I wanna be very clear, and I say this in, in the prologue, every detail comes directly from the historical record. I have fabricated nothing, I have embellished nothing. Um, and it's because these newspapers uh, wrote about these topics almost novelistically that it allowed me to recreate these scenes in such vivid detail. You think the newspapers embellished things a little bit? I mean, was the style of newspaper writing at the time to kind of dramatize? Yeah, so that's a great question. And this is something you have to grapple with as a historian is the credibility of your sources. And so um, there were some papers that I think uh, had a tendency to be more accurate than others. And so I would gravitate towards those papers. Or if I saw something printed in multiple papers, then I would lend more credence to that than if it was there was an anomalous, anomalous report that only appeared in one paper. Um, and there's also a difference sometimes between Democratic and Republican papers. <coughs> Newspapers didn't really aspire to this ideal of nonpartisan objectivity that most papers did throughout the 20th century, although we may be entering a new era of journalism where we, we go back into fragmentation and partisan journalism. Um, for better or worse, we can that, that can be another debate. But uh, you know, de because Dukes was a Democrat and Nutt was a Republican, different papers 
uh, might have a different cast on how um, on how to treat this story. In the Dukes trial, you have a jury of 12 Democrats acu uh, acquit Dukes, a Democrat who killed a Republican. And so Republican papers are very quick to whip up allegations of partisan machinations. In reality, it was a heavily Democratic county, and the defense could pre preemptorily challenge off uh, five times as many jurors as the prosecution. So it wasn't that difficult for them to get an all-Democratic jury without any kind of conspiracy behind it. Uh, but it gave the appearance of political machinations. Um, and Democratic papers, to rebut those allegations, claim, no, we, we denounce Dukes just as vehemently as you do. Um, and they, they didn't want Dukes being a Democrat and being painted as a villain to taint the rest of the Democratic Party. And so papers of all stripes supported the Nutt family and championed the code of honor over and above the rule of law. Um, but the way that they... Uh, but Democrats tried to, Democratic papers often tried to treat this as a bipartisan issue, and Republican papers tried to score points with the Democratic papers. And so, as a historian dealing with those sources, you need to take both of those things into account. And the partisan nature of some of the reporting is very much part of the story. Now, you said in the book, after the trial in which uh, Dukes was found not guilty, he and Lizzie gave uh, interviews to newspapers? That's right. They didn't just kind of hole up and mind their own business, but they that's went out right. and gave interviews. Yeah, that's right. So Dukes was actually uh, forbidden by law from testifying in trial. Defendants could not actually speak on their own behalf even if they want to, uh, even if they wanted to at that time, and that's a rule that was eventually abrogated. You know, we, we're all familiar with the rule that defendants don't have to testify against themselves, but here he didn't even have the option. And so it's, it's not until he's acquitted that he's able to say anything publicly um, about the case at all, and he's interviewed, um, and he claims that he killed Captain Nutt in self-defense. He claims that when Captain Nutt confronted Dukes in Dukes's hotel room, where he was a permanent lodger, he had lived in this hotel for eight years, um, that he had tried to keep Dukes at bay, um, but that Dukes's nephew, who was outside of Dukes's room in the hallway at this hotel, uh, named a young man named Clark Breckenridge, when Nutt and Dukes. Um, were struggling against each other in this sort of wrestling match and Nutt's trying to hit him with this heavy cane and he hears him call for Clark. Um, Dukes takes out his gun and according to Dukes, which he claims in this newspaper interview, um, Captain Nutt tried to take out his gun and, and it was entangled. And so Dukes, fearing that Nutt would disentangle his gun and shoot him, instead shoots, Duke, instead shoots Captain Nutt in self-defense. And at that moment, Clark Breckenridge and a couple other witnesses burst into the room only after Dukes has um, committed this homicide in self-defense. The story from the witnesses is that they actually got into the room and broke up the fight before Dukes fired his weapon. It was only after the fight was broken up and Dukes and Nutt had been relegated to their separate corners that Dukes took out his gun and fired his weapon. And so that's the story um, that was told at trial. Uh, and. Dukes wasn't able to rebut that with his own testimony. It's only after he's acquitted that he's able to give his side of the story. Lizzie, for her part, um, is she's a really interesting figure. She, did, she does a couple of newspaper interviews, um, and she uh, is deeply saddened by the loss of her father. Um, she was the apple of her father's eye. And so um, she gives the kinds of comments you might expect about a daughter uh, grieving the death of her father, but what was surprising to me was after her brother kills Dukes, 
Lizzie says to a reporter, I wish that James hadn't killed Dukes because I would have done it myself. And this is a statement that is a, at once very traditional and yet very modern. It's traditional in the sense that Lizzie is adhering to the, the code of honor. She's adhering to this idea that female chastity is something that should be defended with murder if necessary. Um, but instead of being playing the, tr the typical female role of being a passive spectator to male violence in defense of the code of honor, Lizzie is suggesting that she herself should take up the responsibility of defending her own honor using violence. And so in some ways she's this very traditional woman, but in other ways she's an extraordinarily modern woman. Uh, and so I think that Lizzie, as much as any character in this book, poignantly embodies this tension between the past and the future that I think is at the heart of this story. Do you think there was anything to the uh, allegations that, uh, that uh, Dukes put in the letters to Captain Nutt? Yeah, so this is a, this is a great question. Is, um, and, and in some ways it's really the central mystery of this book. Did Lizzie Nutt actually have all of these affairs with other men? She never gave birth to any child. Dukes claimed that she'd been pregnant by one of her other suitors. It's possible she never was pregnant. It's possible that she did have an abortion. Um, it's, you know, it's possible that none of it was true. Uh, we don't really know. Um, I suspect that um, despite this code of propriety that we see at the time, that young people or people of all ages outside of marriage are engaging in sexual activity, and it was something that wasn't really supposed to be discussed openly. Um, and I think that uh, it's possible that Lizzie may have had some kind of reputation deserved or not, and Duke seeking to get out of the engagement sought to exploit that. One of the interesting pieces of evidence that comes out is after Dukes is killed, they see in his will that he leaves a sum equivalent to about $50,000 in, in modern money to a young woman named Mary Beeson um, who lives in Uniontown. And it had been alleged that Dukes had actually fallen for Mary. Uh, and the fact that Dukes left so much money to Mary in his will suggests that perhaps he had fallen in love with another woman and was using these allegations as a pretext to um, get rid of his betrothed, to get rid of Lizzie, so that he would be free to marry uh, Mary Beeson. Um, and, and there may be something to that. That may have happened in the absence of Lizzie actually uh, engaging in any activity that was considered promiscuous by the day. Or it may have been that Lizzie really had engaged in some promiscuous activity and Dukes was able to seize on that as a pretext. But it's a central mystery in the book that we'll, we'll never really know the truth of. Well, I have to ask you this. Uh, at one point in the trial, they, um, they're going to read the letters. And you say, the court first waited for the women present to exit. It would have been highly improper for any lady to hear such lascivious language. Right. So right. all the women had to leave the room while the letters were read. That's right. So the, the letters contain allegations that by the standards of the day were considered fairly graphic. Um, so Dukes writes in one letter, um, that, uh, you know, that he says that he wanted to subject Lizzie um, to an erotic test to see if she were a pure woman or not after he had heard that she had been promiscuous by other people. And so he says in his letter to Captain Nutt that he made a solicitation and he says, he writes in the letter, uh, to my infinite astonishment and grief she melted down like wax. Uh, and he says, what was my horror and heart sickness when I found the signs of her virginity wanting? And so this is about as graphic as it gets. 
but that's very graphic by Victorian standards. And so, um, and so the fact that women present had to leave the courtroom uh, is, is an index of um, a world in which there's this idea that we need to protect women from hearing anything that uh, uh, smacks of sexuality in any form. Um, and, and so the very reason that Dukes and Nut fought in the first place was the same reason that women had to leave the courtroom when hearing these letters read. Do you think Dukes knew he was looking for trouble when he wrote these letters to the father? I mean, weren't there easier ways of getting out of an engagement? Sure, and actually uh, Nutt says as much to Dukes. He says, you know, if you had found that my daughter was an unfit companion for you, you should have ended this earlier and your letter need never have been written. Um, and Duke says, well, I kept up appearances uh, for a while before I abandoned her, um, but I wasn't really in love with her and I wasn't really uh, planning on marrying her. And so, um, so I think that uh, there, were, there, there probably was an easier way to do this, but I think in Duke's mind, he never imagined that writing this letter would have culminated in the death of either the author of the letter or the recipient, much less both, as it so happened. Uh, I think that in his mind, he thought, I'll write this letter. I'm describing such shameful activity on Lizzie's part that Captain Nutt would never want this to get out. He'll want to resolve this matter as discreetly and quietly and expeditiously as possible, and I can move on with my life. Um, what he hadn't banked on was the fact that Captain Nutt was willing to shed blood and possibly risk his own life. And indeed, he ultimately sacrificed his life to defend the honor of his daughter. You used the phrase a couple times, the code of honor. What was the code of honor in the 1880s and where did it come from? Sure, sure. So the code of honor uh, was something that was imported from Europe. Um, and you know, different historians will give you different arguments about whether that was mainly a Celtic thing. Um, I argue in the book that actually this is a national phenomenon that's, that predominates not just in, in the Celtic South, but also among Anglo-Saxons in the North. Um, Dukes and Nutt are both Anglo-Saxons. And Uniontown, although it's in southwestern Pennsylvania, which has a large Celtic population, Uniontown is actually atypical of western Pennsylvania and is largely Anglo-Saxon. So it's more typical of the North in that regard. Um, <coughs> so some historians suggest that it it comes from uh, it comes from different ethnicities. So uh, and then the the way that it's defined um, in the 1880s, it's different for each gender. So for men, the code of honor uh, entails the esteem with which you hold yourself and which you demand from other people. And uh, and for women, it's about chastity. So when they use the phrase a woman's honor, they mean was she chased outside of marriage. Um, and, and these two uh, components of honor are interlinked. So the, the, the greatest test of a man's honor is his willingness to shed blood and possibly sacrifice his life to defend the impugned honor of a woman in his family. And so honor is individual in nature, but it's also familial and it's also communal. There's a lot of talk about the honor of Uniontown or the honor of Fayette County or the honor of the Commonwealth state, of, or the Keystone state, rather, of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, and so there's, and so honor is this really complex ideal that operates both on an individual but also on a collective level. And um, did 
You mentioned Uniontown, and we haven't really talked about that. For people who are not familiar with it, where is it and what was it like in the 1880s? Sure, sure. You know, one of the things I, I wanted to do in the book was take pains to, you know, walk the reader down the street of Uniontown in the 1880s and give them a, a flavor of what daily life was like there at that time. Uniontown is located about an hour south of Pittsburgh, um, not, too, not too far north from the border, not too far north from Morgantown, West Virginia. Um, it's in the heart of coal country. It was, at one time, uh, the local historical society told me they actually, in the 1880s, had more millionaires per capita than any other town in, in America because there were, it was the financial center of the coke and coal industry. Um, so a lot of the outlying areas had a lot of poor immigrant communities, but Uniontown itself was getting a lot of the, the coal money. Um, and uh, in Uniontown, in many ways, embodies this tension between the traditional and the modern that I talk a lot about in this book. Um, it's a place that, uh, on the one hand, has this feel of a small town. You could walk across it in under 20 minutes. Um, it's dominated by um, a, f a few leading families. Um, everybody knows each other. There's, there's about 2,000 people that live there in 1882 when the story begins. Um, it has the local Masonic fraternities, where the men belong to. Um, it had, you know, the post office is a site of a lot of sociability. Um, everyone goes there to collect their 7 p.m. mail. That's how James Nutt knew that Dukes would be at the post office at the time that he was, because um, everyone went there at 7 o'clock to collect their mail. Um, there were pubs that people would frequent that were in the local hotels. Um, they had uh, gas lamps on some of the streets, which was a fairly modern invention. Um, so you had some of these elements of the traditional and the more mo <coughs> modern elements um, things like the telegraph office. Um, the first telephone comes to Union Town around this time. You have the train that can take you to Pittsburgh and from there to the, the rest of the world. Um, and so you have a, a community that is both small, um, that is, that is tight-knit, um, that is in, in many ways uh, would feel familiar to people that had grown up in Union Town in earlier generations, and yet at the same time, it's increasingly integrated into this modern world where uh, the advent of communications like the telegraph and telephone, the advent of travel like trains, um, industrialization are sweeping places like Uniontown into a more integrated national and international network. You, your subtitle of your book is uh, The Tale of Honor, Insanity, and the Birth of Modern America. And how, how does this uh, reflect the birth of modern America? Sure, sure. So um, this is, I see the code of honor as something that is firmly rooted in tradition. And the rule of law is a key element of a modern society. Um, and these two things work in tension. You can't have uh, a, a code of honor which sanctions people taking the law into their own hands and committing violence outside the formal channels of justice and also have a truly modern society where you have a rule of law and you cede violence to the state, which enjoys a monopoly on violence. Um, you can't have both of those things. And so to the extent that this is a book about a society trying to hold on to the code of honor um, in a modern society that's pushing back against traditional values, you know, this is an era of rapid industrialization, urbanization, immigration, People are born into a world of horses and candlelight and small towns and farms, and all of a sudden they're finding themselves in a world 
of huge crowds, big cities, factories, bureaucracies, and these changes are really jarring. And so people are clinging to the code of honor as a bulwark against these changes. Um, and ultimately, the rule of law does win out in American history. But we see here in the 1880s this pushback in defense of the code of honor before people are willing to concede that to modern life. You said the courts still tended to kind of wink at honor killings? Absolutely. I mean, one of the extraordinary things about this case is the number of people in uh, political or legal positions, people in Congress, judges, even the President of the United States, people who work for the government who are, in theory, dedicated by profession to the rule of law, actually um, sympathizing with the Nutt family and defending James's revenge killing against Dukes. And even the judge in James Nutt's trial uh, actually gives an interview to the papers um, after James is found not guilty by reason of insanity. And, he's, and he says, I'm thrilled that the jury uh, has acquitted him. Um, and he says, you know, my own son said that if someone had done to me what Nicholas Dukes did to Captain Nutt, that he wouldn't have shot my assassin the way James Nutt had. He would tear his body apart piece by piece. And the judge grins as he recalls to the press his son's willingness to resort to bodily mutilation in defense of the code of honor. So even these legal figures are willing to throw the rule of law by the wayside and champion uh, this traditional premium on honor. Yeah, you say the judge uh, had been a paragon of impartiality throughout the proceedings. But uh, after the verdict, he descended from the bench, bearing a smile, and began to shake hands with those who had labored for acquittal. So James became a folk hero? Yeah, so James... Oh, did he just walk up and shoot Nut in the back? Yeah. Or so shoot uh, Dukes in the back? Sure. So, um, so James was waiting in the, band, in the shadows of an abandoned storefront uh, that was around the corner from the post office. And he had his father's gun loaded on him at the time. And Nicholas Dukes every day would walk, um, it was just a block or two, from his hotel to the post office to pick up the 7 p.m. mail. And James um, was standing on a, a three-foot stone sill, and there was a wooden pillar um, coming up from the stone sill holding up the second floor of this building. And James is, lean, is standing on this sill, so he has some height on Dukes when Dukes walks by. And as Dukes walks by, James is about, you know, maybe just 10 feet behind him, if that. And James, on top of the sill, pulls out his father's gun and strikes Dukes. And the bullet um, enters between Dukes' ribs and um, ends up in Dukes' lungs. And Dukes turns around and sees James jumping off the sill, cocking his gun again. And Dukes turns to flee, and James fires a second shot. This one entering just within a couple inches of the first bullet hole, also entering um, Dukes's lungs. And as Dukes's lungs begin to fill with blood, he begins a staggered run around the corner uh, to the post office for cover. And he starts climbing the steps to the post office. And James, in hot pursuits, fires his gun three more times. Um, he misses one. Um, another one, the bullet lodges into Dukes's heart, and a third one ricochets off Dukes's ankle and ends up smashing. Uh, a post office box inside the post office. Miraculously, no one but Dukes was hurt, and Dukes, with three bullets inside of him, one in his chest, collapses face forward into the post office. So there was no uh, question of uh, violating a code of honor to shoot somebody in the back? Yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's a good question, because uh, 
you know, Nicholas Dukes and Adam Nutt had had an exchange where they had, they had, um, Captain Nutt had made it very clear that he intended to take Dukes's life. Um, and so there, there wasn't, uh, you know, Dukes, I think, was, couldn't have been too surprised by Captain Nutt showing up to his room when Captain Nutt said he was going to do that. Uh, on the other hand, James did wait in the shadows and shoot Dukes in the back, but no one accused James of violating the code of honor or not giving Dukes a fair fight because Dukes had been villainized um, so much. He was such a loathed figure across the country that really any violence enacted against James, given what had happened in the Nutt family, was seen as legitimate. Why did uh, Duke stick around town after all this? He was getting death threats, and, and well, he yeah. was also elected to the state legislature. Right, it's a good question. So after Dukes is acquitted, um, as I mentioned before, he flees on horseback uh, to his stepfather's estate um, in the countryside, and he um, and so he's about uh, you know I think maybe ten miles outside of Uniontown, something like that, uh, in German Township, and he. He stays there for a while. There's this debate in the state legislature um, in Harrisburg about whether they should kick Dukes out of the state legislature or not. And even though he was acquitted. Right, even though he was acquitted because he's such a loathed figure. And so there's this debate, well, if, you know, we, we couldn't possibly stomach someone who would violate the code of honor and, and thereby dishonor the legislature by sitting here with us um, into this chamber, but on the other hand, there's a concern, at least among some members, that if they summarily kick Dukes out, this will create a dangerous precedent susceptible to future abuse where other people might be kicked out under false pretenses for political reasons. And so as they're debating this, they get a telegram from Dukes uh, vacating a seat in the legislature, um, and that saves them the, the danger of having to set a potentially problematic precedent in the state legislature. But Dukes decides ultimately several weeks after his acquittal to return to Uniontown. And his friends advise him to leave for fear of his safety. There had been a lynch mob that had tried to kill him. And although things had settled down somewhat, um, there was, there, it was, you know, he was still getting death threats in the mail. And um, Dukes, and I think this, this very much still speaks to the code of honor, he says, I will live here or out in the cemetery. He was either going to live his life in Uniontown or he was going to be killed trying to do that. What was he doing for a living while all that was He was a lawyer. On? So, uh, and Dukes had actually been trained by an apprentice under the same lawyer that had trained Captain Nutt. Um, and he, as he goes back to Uniontown and is practicing law, there's a movement afoot to actually have Dukes disbarred. And at the time that he's killed, it was just a day or two before his disbarment hearing was to take place, in which he... I think almost certainly would have been disbarred. Well, Captain Nutt, our, our first victim of the shooting, was was not a saint either because he was. You said he was working for the state treasury. Yes. And he quietly withdrew ten thousand dollars from the state coffers to speculate on oil in September of eighteen eighty two. He took an additional thirty two thousand dollars for the same purpose. A total of nearly a million dollars today. Undoubtedly, he hoped to earn a profit and replenish the missing funds at the treasury without detection. Right. Right. Um, but it was detected. It was detected. I mean, this is, this is what I find, you know, so fascinating about this story, um, is that on its face it appears to be this, you know, you could see it as a story of heroes and villains, but everyone has a bit of heroism and villainism in them. And so Captain Nutt is, is adored as this father who, um, who uh, 
defends his daughter's honor. Um, he's a Civil War hero. He, um, he, he's a, a white man but led an, an all-black regiment in, in the Civil War. Uh, and yet here is someone who is literally stealing money from the state treasury to speculate on oil. And instead of going up, oil had gone down, and he was actually drowning in debt at the time of his death. Um, and I was actually talking to a member of the local historical society in, in Fayette County um, who had a, a theory about this that I find really interesting, that, that Captain Nutt, um, fearing that he was going to be exposed for his treachery, and when Dukes wrote this letter, this almost gave Nutt an out. This gave him a, a way to die with honor before um, this secret became public. Um, and is there some level, perhaps consciously, perhaps subconsciously, that he was eager for a fatal affray that would allow him to depart this life um, as celebrated a figure in death as he was when he still walked on the earth? Um, and so th I think that's a, that's a really interesting question about the psychology at play there. Um, but I also wonder if part of Captain Nutt's, uh, wondered if Dukes was telling the truth about Lizzie, that maybe Lizzie did have some shameful secrets that she had kept from her father, and yet he too had a shameful secret. And so he could sympathize with a daughter who was trying to keep something from the outside world. Any, uh, do you find any descendants of uh, the, I guess the Nutt family, I guess Dukes didn't have any descendants. Yeah, so um, there are some of the descendants of people I write about in this trial I've met in Uniontown. Um, there are some people in Uniontown whose last name is Nutt, um, although I haven't met them. Um, but I just, I just got an email from uh, someone who came to a book signing I did there who said, I'm lending my copy to someone whose last name is Nutt who thinks they might be related. Um, but one of the people that I met is actually the uh, great-granddaughter of the sheriff. And if I could just say a word about him, because I think your viewers would be interested in this facet of the story, and I think this, this captures just how rich and intricate the story is um, and how fantastical it is. The, uh, when Nicholas Dukes was a boy, he suffered from uh, what at the time was called white swelling, tuberculosis of the joints. And this bigger boy in his class, James Hoover, would carry Dukes on his back to school every day. And the two of them forged this friendship in childhood uh, that endures into adulthood. And a generation later, Nicholas Dukes is on trial for his life, and James Hoover has now become Sheriff Hoover. And if Nicholas Dukes is found guilty of murder and sentenced to die, it will fall to Sheriff Hoover to hang his childhood companion from the gallows. It is an irony so perverse that if I wrote it in a novel, you'd tell me, Andrew, that's contrived. Is the Nut Mansion still standing in Uniontown? Yeah, so the Nut Mansion um, still exists. Um, it's, it's actually in the National Register of Historic Places. There's a local physician who purchased it a few years back, and, um, uh, and it's, it's in great shape. It's a beautiful home on a hill overlooking Uniontown. It's, it's considered one of the best surviving examples of Queen Anne-style architecture. And so for your viewers who live in the Uniontown area or... Um, uh, are, are in the town and have an opportunity to visit. It's, it's a beautiful home. Any of the other landmarks, the courthouse or the post office? So uh, the building um, that housed the post office was called the Round Corner Building. There's a new version of the Round Corner Building that still exists um, on that street corner. And the, the post office, uh, the, the courthouse that was there at the time um, no longer exists. There's a new courthouse on the same site, but there's a statue of General Lafayette, whom Fayette County is named after, 
that was on top of the courthouse where Dukes was tried. And that statue has been preserved and is now on display in a rotunda inside the current courthouse. And the law librarian there is convinced that I bear a resemblance to the statue. Um, I don't see it as much, but perhaps it's, it's fate that I was going to pursue this story. You said this is your first book? This is my first book, yeah. Well, what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm a history professor at the University of Oklahoma. What do you teach? I teach um, a lot of constitutional and legal history. How did you land at the University of Oklahoma? They, <laughs> that's a good question. It's, uh, you know, I was, I was finishing uh, my PhD uh, actually in the UK, and I'm from, I'm from the United States. I decided to go to graduate school in England, and I was applying for jobs um, all over, not just the United States, but around the world. And there was, uh, I had a background in legal history, and there was an opening for a new constitutional studies program at the University of Oklahoma looking for a legal historian. And I sent in an application, and I was, uh, I was fortunate to, uh, to, to get the job. And, uh, you know, part of my, Part of my incentive to write the book was that it was such a gripping story, um, but the other incentive is that I need to publish a book so I can get tenure. Um, so there are a lot of forces working in the same direction here. So this is actually a book written to be a book and not a, a, an embellished uh, doctoral thesis. Right, this, is, um, this book is entirely faithful to the historical record. Um, you can find you know, 40 to 50 pages of endnotes. Everything is heavily footnoted. Um, it is a book that is very much geared towards a broad audience in terms of uh, the story, and, and, and I try to write it for a broader audience, but it's also um, an academic book in that it's a book that tries to teach us something about the Gilded Age that we didn't know before. It's trying to make a claim that this code of honor and this practice of honor killing was not something that was unique to the American South, as historians have long told us, but something that was actually uh, a phenomenon that was national in character. And one of the things that really appealed to me about this story is that I thought it would allow me to write a book that could reach a broader audience, but also say something important to the historical profession that hadn't been said before. Did the Code of Honor die out? Uh, I think that the Code of Honor um, does largely die out um, at some point. I, you know, as I, I mentioned this in the afterword of the book, that as late as the 1930s, you can actually find a publication no less esteemed than the Yale Law Journal actually advocating the decriminalization of the Honor Code. This isn't some, you know, backwoods Appalachian code that's only surviving in pockets that people see as somehow, you know, not fully modern. This is something um, that is supported in places like southwestern Pennsylvania, and you see it in newspapers across the country. Um, you see, uh, you know, farmers advocating the honor code and President Chester Arthur advocating the honor code. This is something that's far more widespread than historians have really given credence to previously. Um, and so I think ultimately the honor code does die out. I think that we need to do more research to figure out how. And the honor code, I would argue, does continue to exist in some forms um, to this day, in gang culture, for instance. Gangs don't have the ability to go into courts and have courts enforce contracts. And so you have to have an honor code in order to keep a black market system intact. Um, there's also some work that's been done on underground gambling rings in Philadelphia through the 1970s, how the honor code had to endure there. Again, when you don't have the rule of law to be able to arbitrate conflict, you have to have something like a code of honor that people buy into because otherwise the system will fall apart. So you do see it 
survive in these um, illicit pockets of society uh, in modern times. Was there much dueling going on by the 1880s? So there, you did, so, you know, I describe this fight between Dukes and Nutt as a duel. And in fact, the, the front page of the New York Times the day after their fatal affray refers to it as a duel. Um, and so I adopt that terminology. And so it is a duel in the sense that these are two people committed to the code of honor who um, have an exchange which indicates that a violent fight is at hand and agree to a predetermined time and place to meet. And so in that sense, it's a duel. The very traditional kind of dueling where you'd have firsts and seconds, the first being the principal person in the duel, the second being the person who communicates with the other person second to arrange the details, the, the number of paces, the length of the pistols, all of those sorts of details, that very ritualistic kind of dueling is more common in the South. So uh, you know, in this book, I'm not saying that the code of honor is identical in the North and South. Um, Northern dueling tended to appropriate some elements of the Southern dueling ritual, um, but tended to be less formalistic. And so even though dueling had been outlawed across the country at this time, it still does exist in some forms. And the very fact that it's illegal is that much more of a testament to the bravery and the courage of the people who are willing to engage in honor. Because they're not just defending their honor, but they're doing it in the face of the letter of the law. You say in the book that there was still some dueling going on in the army. Yeah, so um, yeah, there's, there's a book by uh, a scholar named Lorian Foote at Texas A&M um, called The Gentleman in the Roughs, in which she, that I draw from in this book, where she writes about um, she has a chapter that deals with dueling that's going on in the Union Army. That, you know, we often think of the South as being the place dedicated to honor, um, and the North is somehow different. Um, but in fact, the Union Army was deeply dedicated to honor. You see dueling between officers um, in the North uh, that uh, honor is something that's very central to the culture of the Union Army. And Nutt, of course, um, comes out of that experience. He's someone who. Uh, in 1861, joins the Union Army, um, serves with distinction in 40 battles throughout the war, um, someone who's involved in the Grand Army of the Republic, which is a veterans group, uh, someone whose sense of his manhood, whose sense of identity is deeply tethered to uh, his history with uh, this ideal of military honor. Uh, I want to read you something from... Um your book, you say, uh, Pennsylvania in 1843 became one of the first states to criminalize seduction, legally defined as the persuasion by a man of a female virgin to engage in sex under the false promise that he would later marry her. And you later say, as Pennsylvania's judiciary interpreted the law, a vile and corrupt woman who indulged in her own lustful propensities would naturally find no protection under the act, but the statute did extend to a reformed woman who, after a solitary lapse, was now walking in the fear of God and in the path of virtue. Yes. So, and Brian, if I could, I just want to point out that the, the language vile and corrupt and lustful propensities is, is in quotation marks in the book. Not that's your not, words. That's not mm -hmm. my language. Um, that's from a judicial decision. Um, yeah, and so there's this concern um, in a modernizing world where people are moving into cities, where men are either um, you know, leaving their homes to go to a place of work instead of working at home on their farm, um, or women themselves are leaving and taking jobs in cities, that women are no longer under the watchful gaze of their fathers and their brothers. And so the opportunities for seduction to take place for a woman 
to fall prey to a suitor are expanding. And so only in a world where you're concerned about seduction do you have to criminalize it. There had been, it had been a longstanding custom inherited from England that you could actually sue someone for civil damages for seducing your daughter. Um, but, the, but to actually uh, criminalize it was something new. And here Pennsylvania was actually ahead of the curve. In the Gilded Age, you see many more states across the country criminalize honor killing. And in Pennsylvania, it was punishable by three years of hard labor in solitary confinement. So was James really crazy when he killed Dukes, or, or was that a, a bogus um, temporary insanity plea? Right. I think that James legitimately was, uh, did suffer from mental illness. I think he really did have some kind of insanity because um, about a decade after he's acquitted, um, at this point he's living on a farm in Kansas uh, that his mother owns, and he's married and has a baby, and he without provocation for no reason, actually opens fire on um, a neighbor of his who, who, whom he's known for years and had just treated him to dinner. And he shoots this woman needlessly. He shoots her servant needlessly. Um, miraculously, they both survive. Um, but James is tried for attempted double homicide. And now, no longer a sympathetic defendant as he's enacted violence on, on innocent people um, rather than someone who's seduced his sister and killed his father, he is now... Uh, found guilty. Um, and so the irony is, in his first trial, when there wasn't really compelling evidence that he suffered from insanity, even though he likely did, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. In the second trial, when there was occasion to think that he actually suffered from insanity, um, the jury wouldn't give him that, uh, and he was found guilty um, and, wa and, and wasn't able to walk free. What became of Lizzie after all this? So Lizzie, not unlike me, moved to Oklahoma. Um, she ended up marrying a traveling salesman, um, and she is buried in uh, a cemetery in Oklahoma City, and she ended up having children there and uh, living a relatively long life. And so um, her ability to get married and build a new life for herself is, is, one of the, is sort of the silver lining in a story that has uh, a lot of dark clouds for the Nutt family. Did you find other other correspondence, I mean, letters or diaries or anything written by any of the principals in this book besides the newspaper reports? Sure. So, and uh, well, a lot of the relevant primary sources were submitted into evidence in court. Um, so things like the the letters exchanged between Dukes and Nutt, um, copies of Dukes's will where we see that he left all of this money to Mary Beeson. Um, letters to the editors that people are writing into newspapers, um, court records showing um, that Nutt had uh, stolen money from the state treasury. That only because his family finds out just a couple days after his death, but that only becomes public um, a few years later that he'd actually stolen money from the state treasury. Um, so there were uh, sermons that I found. Um, there are love letters from Dukes to Lizzie in which he, uh, at a time when he claims to Captain Nutt that he was merely playing the part of her suitor in 1882, but was actually planning to abandon her, he writes these letters full of longing and yearning about, about how much he misses her when she goes away for the summer um, that, that really seem to be from someone who's a doting suitor and not someone who just found out that she was promiscuous and wants nothing to do with her and is planning on breaking it off with her. So there's really an extraordinary collection of primary sources. And one of the reasons I was motivated to tell this book is that 
this, this collection of diverse and very detailed primary sources um, was so unique and it would allow me to recreate the story um, in, in such vivid terms for the reader uh, that I was immediately drawn to the source material. Now, Oxford University Press, who published this book, is a pretty prestigious publisher. And what is it about this story that rises it above just an ordinary true crime story that would get the attention of somebody like Oxford University Press? Sure. Um, so, you know, while I was working on the book, I, I spoke to someone who's a, a series editor and also a professor at UT Austin named Michael Stove, who edits the series New Narratives in American History. And they... Um, have this book series. I think I think they've done you know maybe a dozen or fifteen books in the series, and they they're all narrative histories that capture some moment in American history, but also tell us something new and interesting about history. And and so I think that this book was interesting to um, Professor Stove and other people at Oxford University Press because um, it was a story that with the political intrigue and the illicit sex and the murder and the insanity had a lot of elements that could have broad appeal, but it also revealed a whole culture of honor in the North that historians haven't really talked about before. Um, that this was adding to our knowledge and challenging the conventional wisdom that honor was somehow relegated to just south of the Mason-Dixon um, by the Gilded Age. And so I think it was a combination of um, the story having the elements that could reach a broad readership, um, but also making a meaningful contribution to historical scholarship. The idea of honor was more prevalent in the South than in the North. I mean, why is it thought to be a Southern thing? Yeah, well, I think that I think that we. It's very alluring to fall into these binary oppositions. That um, if the South is like X, then the North must be the opposite, and if the North is like Y, the South must be the opposite of Y. Um, and so, if the South is rural, the North must be industrial, and the South is about slavery, then the North must be about freedom, and if the South is about honor, then the North must be about the rule of law. And the reality is that it's always more complex than that. And so I think honor is at play in both of these societies, in both Northern and Southern culture. It doesn't always take the same forms, as I mentioned, with Northern versus Southern dueling. Sometimes in the South, it could be more ritualistic. Um, and it may be that the, the honor code has more resonance in the South than it does in the North, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't resonate in the North. I think, at least in the 1880s, it resonates very deeply. I think we would need more research into the role of honor in different regions to see the different forms that it takes and how it operates in cities versus countryside, um, how it might operate in different regions of the North versus different regions of the South. Um, and so uh, I think that we, we are, we're drawn to uh, the, sim the simplicity of wanting to caricature certain regions as one way or another. Um, and the truth is, is, and this is the great part about writing about history, is that it, it's always complex and it's always idiosyncratic. If this story took place today, how would the courts approach it? How would it play out in the courts differently? You know, it's, it's a great question. And you never really know what a jury is going to do. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes... Um, jury trials such rich fodder for historians or for novelists or playwrights or screenwriters um, because there's no there's no real telling what a, ju a, a jury of 12 peers may do I think that um, there is a premium on the rule of law and there is I, I think there would be 
uh, I hope that there would be anxiety about people taking the law into their own hands and enacting violence on each other outside of the, of the justice system. Um, there's a real danger in that, and I think the story speaks to that. James is let free because he's a sympathetic defendant, even though he murdered Dukes, and then he only sheds more blood, this time with innocent people. And so I think the story speaks to the dangers of not adhering to the rule of law. Um, but uh, it's, it's conceivable that under the right circumstances, uh, a sympathetic jury could perhaps find occasion to acquit someone who murders someone else. You think about um, a case like the Bernard Gatz case in 1984 in New York, where um, in a city that's seen as lawless, and he murders four teenagers who try to mug him and uses more lethal force than they had used on him. Um, and he was acquitted because he was seen as defending himself in a world where the rule, you know, the rule of law wasn't really in place in New York, that it was seen as a very violent city. And so um, it's not inconceivable to think that um, perhaps someone could get acquitted today, although I think it's less likely today than it would be in the 1880s. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Andrew Poorwancher. He is the author of this book, The Devil Himself, A Tale of Honor, Insanity, and the Birth of Modern America. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.